In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We like our Christ types without any delays. Let me explain what I mean. I don't know if it's because the story of Jesus' sacrificial death and glorious resurrection has been a significant part of our culture for a long time, or if it's because a story in which the hero sacrifices themselves is a universal narrative that's baked into what it means to be human in any culture. But in either case, sacrifice is a regular feature of our heroic tales. The strong give themselves up in order to save their friends. But frequently, as soon as our hero has made their sacrifice, we quickly find that they have returned without any delay. Maybe they didn't even have to die after all. I think about Disney films like the animated classic Robin Hood, where Robin dives into the moat with arrows flying just behind him. We see his hat with an arrow float to the surface, but within moments, we find out it's okay, he's all right after all. Or the dramatic scene in Disney's telling of the Hercules myth, where our hero offers his life to save another's, and the fates get ready to cut his life thread, only to discover that his sacrifice tapped into his divinity, and they couldn't kill him after all. Hercules doesn't even have to die. It's tempting to do the same with Jesus on Good Friday. We know what's coming on Sunday, and it's uncomfortable to linger here in death and in shame. But linger here we must, because in order to meditate on Jesus' defeat of sin and death, we have to spend some time reflecting on how he took them on in their fullness. Our liturgy this evening is unlike any other. I wrote earlier this Lent that every Sunday liturgy is like a little Easter where we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. But today is the one day a year when we are not permitted to say the Eucharistic prayers and con consecrate communion elements. Tonight's patterns don't follow the regular flow of the liturgy. It does its own thing. And that thing is to force us to pause and face the cross. One way we can do that is to spend some time reflecting on the atonement. And there's good work to be done when we marvel at how Jesus' crucifixion won our salvation and freed us from the power of sin. The what of Good Friday is that Jesus takes on sin and death for us. But the work of the cross is made complete in the resurrection. I might even go so far as to say that Good Friday on its own is not good, or rather its goodness is incomplete. On its own, it doesn't give us hope for the life of the world to come. As in liturgical time, Jesus has not yet been raised from the dead as the first fruit of the life of the world to come, giving us hope for our own resurrection. He takes on our sins, but the glory shown to us on this night is only fully understood in retrospect. But I don't think we have to leave this evening dour and shameful or sorrowful. I don't intend to preach you into shame and guilt this evening. There is something good for us to reflect on, but we have to do some work to get there. Now, the liturgy itself will give us the opportunity to face our sins. And so what I want to do is look at the one who is bearing them. Acknowledging what of atonement as a given, let's spend some time seeing the who and the how, or in what manner. We often frame or meditate on Jesus' sacrifice in terms of the physical pain. Three of our 14 stations of the cross here are Jesus stumbling under its weight. And the pain must have been excruciating. I will assume that you already know these sorts of details, that you already have in your mind that physical pain. So instead of trying to sort out the mechanics of Roman crucifixion, I want to dwell where most of our text dwells, and that's on Jesus' emotional pain. 
We read that Judas knew of the place that Jesus and the disciples were going because it was a place where Jesus often met with the disciples. Maybe it was a space where they rested and prayed together. Maybe it's where they got away from the crowds. Maybe it's where he taught them. Imagine how that place of peace became the very place where Jesus was handed over to be killed. Then there's the disbursement of the disciples. I wonder if that hurt more than anything else could have, certainly any beatings. Those dear friends who promised to stay with him until the end, fleeing into the night. Peter, when he was fueled by adrenaline, was willing to grab a sword and jump into battle. This reality set in, and it became clear that this wasn't going to be a conflict, one with swords or with armies. He moves into fear and denial. In our text, just as Jesus is explaining to Annas that his actions were out in the open and plain for everyone to see, his most trusted disciple was denying any association with him, even to a relative of the man whose ear he cut off. Confronted with the dissonance between what he was asserting and the obvious truth, Peter doubled down on the lie because the truth would have been too painful to speak. There's the mockery. Jesus' own people who he came to save, he was their king, shouting, we have no king but Caesar. And while Pilate had his misgivings about this innocent man that he was being pressured into crucifying, his soldiers had no such internal struggle. They mock and beat him. Anyone who suffered the cruelty of personalized insults knows exactly what this feels like. Jesus, fully aware of his right as king, who was tempted in the wilderness with that very title which was rightfully his, had it thrown back to him as an insult with a crown of thorns, humiliated. And he was put on display, not killed in a back room. This isn't a political assassination. He was killed in public, put out for everyone to walk by and see. The function of Roman crucifixion was to be an example to others, to make a statement. And imagine being in agony while people just walk in and out of town. His trial went through the night, and Luke's gospel says that Jesus died around noon, which means the last hours before his death were in the morning hours of Good Friday. I think of the influx of people who are in town for the Passover just strolling by on their morning commute. Maybe people he had healed past him and averted their eyes. Would the people who got at him hurt more, or would it have been those who couldn't make eye contact? This terrible act, made even worse by its utter commonplace banality, just another en enemy of Rome, on with your business. This is the picture we get in our Gospels of Jesus in agony, in emotional pain, betrayed and humiliated. But what do we see from him in these moments? What do we see on the face of our Savior as he faces this physical and emotional torture? Through it all, we see love. In the garden as he's being arrested, Jesus defends his friends who are about to betray him by telling the Roman guards, I am he, let these men go. Jesus, while suffering on the cross, looks at Mary and John, the beloved disciple, and says, Woman, here is your son, here is your mother. There's speculation that John was the youngest of the disciples, maybe even a young teenager at the time. And even in the midst of his suffering, Jesus cared for two of his most vulnerable followers. At every step on the way of the cross, Jesus chose not to incite further rage from his oppressors, but to speak truth plainly and simply. 
maybe even sparing the ones who handed him over to crucifixion from an excess of wrath. Maybe he had compassion on them in that moment as well. In one of our other Gospels, one of his last words is, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He wasn't starting a revolution. He wasn't staring in the face of his enemies. He was staring in the faces of people that he loved. In a time when death and its thrall is ever-present in our lives, dominating our psyche as it thrashes against us, it is good to remember that Jesus chose to stare directly into its abyss and take on its full force for us. As we face the reality of our sin, what we've done and what we've left undone, it is good to remember that Jesus didn't turn away from us, but embraced us as he bore the weight of all of our sins out of love for us. And that goes for all of us. Not one of us can escape the sting of death. Every one of us is scheduled to die until the day when Jesus returns. We began this Lent with the words, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. And every last one of us belongs to what Francis Buffer calls the League of the Guilty. If, as we read through the reproaches this evening, your mind pictures someone else, you are thinking of the wrong person. Now, we're going to get our chance on Sunday to celebrate the beginning of the end of death. Tonight, though, we see sin and death raging at their most tempestuous. And we see the love of God for us at its strongest and most resolute. While recognizing that this is the act of atonement for our sin, we don't need to look at the cross and dwell in our shame, because Jesus took that on as well. When faced with evil, active evil, passive evil, and everything in between, God chose not to give us an answer to the problem, but to give us himself. As we reflect on the cross and on our sin, and the sin of the world, and the way in which sin has distorted this world, we marvel at the love that our God has for us to choose to take on its full weight. In a way, Easter Sunday is about victory, but Good Friday is about love. The depths of God's love for us and the extent to which Jesus would choose to suffer in order to save us. So tonight, we remember our sin and we must stop and look at the cross, but not as an icon of guilt or a reminder of shame, but as a place where God most fully showed his immortal and complete and infinite love for us. Amen.